I'm going to read from Second Samuel, and then um, someone else is going to come up and read from Luke for us. Page 306, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 1 through 11. After the king was settled in his palace, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, living in a house of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. But that night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with, with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people of Israel, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people of Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth, and I will provide a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore, as they did at the beginning, and I, have done, as, and I have done ever since I appointed leaders over my people Israel, and I will also give you rest from all your enemies. This is the word of the Lord. Was it you? The second reading is Luke 1, 26 through 38 found on 1,025 in your pew Bibles. The birth of Jesus foretold. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings to you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at this, or at his words, and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who, has, who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month, for no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. And then the angel left her. This is the word of the Lord.
All right, well, good morning. Nothing like a little uh, mix-up to make Sherman Street, Sherman Street. Um, <laughs> happy Christmas Eve, everyone. Um, I, I think it's funny that we read this morning this story of Mary's conception and baby Jesus is going to be born tomorrow. Like, oh, that all pregnancies could be so quick. Um, <laughs> Um, as we begin looking at the text, I want to give you a pro tip about reading the Gospel of Luke. Um, Luke likes to put together two similar stories kind of next to each other, usually one featuring a man and one featuring a woman, um, and then those stories kind of comment on each other. Um, so the story that we just read about the angel Gabriel coming to Mary to announce her miraculous conception, it comes right after the story of Gabriel coming to Zechariah to announce Elizabeth's miraculous conception, um, which Gabriel mentioned to Mary, you heard in this reading. Um, when that kind of parallel storytelling happens in scripture, which it, it happens in a different way throughout the Old Testament too, you notice like a whole bunch of stories that sort of seem similar, and it's good to read those next to each other and see what the differences might tell you. That's what we're gonna do now, is read these, or talk about these two stories next to each other to see what the differences might tell us um, and the similarities. So if we were to back up to um, earlier in Luke chapter one and read Zachariah's story, you would read that Zachariah is a good man, faithful to God, and that he is a priest, um, a religious leader who works in the temple. The temple, um, the temple was the center of religious life in Israel, uh, but also the center of political and economic life um, like, it's like the Vatican and the White House and Wall Street all like rolled into one. Um, at least in like the Jewish consciousness, right? They think of the temple, they think of this, basically the center of their civilization. Um, now if you remember how the temple is set up, uh, there's like this outer area where everyone could be, like even foreigners like Gentiles, um, and, then, and then a little in from that is what's called the outer court where um, everybody Jewish could be, um, even women. <laughs> and then next in is the inner court, where only Jewish men could be, which I love so much. Um, <laughs> and, then, and then there's inside that is the holy place, where only priests like Zachariah could go. And then inside that is the holy of holies, um, which is where God dwelled between the angels on the top of the Ark of the Covenant. Um, and in that space, only one priest could go once a year. Uh, and I spilled strawberry jam on my sermon this morning, so the pages are sticking together. So you might have to bear with me. Anyway, so in the Holy of Holies, one priest could go there once a year. Um, and he had to go in with like a rope tied around his waist in case he actually accidentally touched something and died. Uh, and if that happened, they would use the rope to drag his dead body out of the Holy of Holies. <laughs> kind of intense. Um, so Zachariah was on duty one day in the temple, and he got chosen by lot to go into the, holy, the, into the holy place to light incense. So that's not the Holy of Holies. That's like one step outside um, where the priests could be. So he got chosen to go into the holy place to light the incense. Um, and that's where Gabriel came to him. That's where he met the angel. Um, it's like exactly where you might expect an angel to come, right? And Zachariah is exactly the kind of person you might expect an angel to come to. The most religious kind of person in the most religious kind of place. 
And Gabriel comes to Zechariah and he tells, um, tells him that he and his wife are going to have a son and they're going to call that son John. And that's John the Baptist. Um, for whatever reason, Zechariah doesn't believe the angel. My guess is that he was afraid of getting his hopes up. Uh, in our text, it said that they hadn't been able to have a child. Um, those of you who have struggled with infertility know the horrible roller coaster of hopes every month dashed every month. Um, maybe he was just afraid to get his hopes up. And also, he's a religious professional standing in one of the most sacred parts of the temple and he's talking to an angel. Like maybe he should have known better. Um, so, so he says, how can I be sure of this? Like, we're pretty old. Um, and the angel says, I'm Gabriel. <laughs> he says, I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you. Like, maybe the angel thinks that he should have known better. Um, and Zachariah is struck with silence until John is born. Um, that's the first story. Then six months later, the angel comes to Mary, same angel, Gabriel, and compared to Zechariah, Mary is a nobody, right? She's a woman, so not even allowed past the outer courts of the temple. She's a teenager and unmarried, so has no status through her spouse. Um, Luke mentions that Joseph, to whom she's betrothed, is in the line of David, so like his family line comes from David, but he doesn't say anything about Mary's lineage um, or about her character. She's probably uneducated and illiterate. Um, and Mary's not in the temple, she's not even in Jerusalem. She's in Nazareth, a nothing town. Like in John 1, Nathaniel first hears about Jesus coming from Nazareth and he says, Nazareth, can anything good come from Nazareth? And he says that because like, he thinks the answer is no, nothing good comes from Nazareth. Um, Zechariah was a religious professional in just about the most religious place, and Mary is a nobody from nowhere. And yet, Gabriel visits her too. Because the work of God is not limited by location or education or status. God chooses Mary, and Gabriel says to her that she is highly favored. You can imagine her reaction, like, me? Why? Right, and the text says she was greatly troubled, and she wondered what kind of greeting this might be. Gabriel tells Mary that she's gonna go on to give birth to a son, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and he will rule on the throne of David, and his kingdom will never end. And Mary doesn't begin with skepticism like David does, even though this is the almost like a ridiculous thing to tell this nobody from nowhere, right? But she doesn't get, begin with skepticism like Zachariah. She, she's scared, but she seems to take Gabriel at his word and begin to make room in herself for its truth. And she asks the question, how? And the angel, says, the angel answers her, and she says, may your word to me be fulfilled. And the angel leaves. The differences between Zechariah and Mary and their responses to, to Gabriel's announcements are worth pondering, right? What is it that keeps the well-educated and the powerful from receiving God's word with joy? Yeah. 
even with an angel standing right in front of them? And what is it that makes someone like Mary so willing to give herself to the message that she hears? In case you think I'm making too much of this comparison, this theme is all over scripture, right? God so often chooses the last, the least, the shortest, the outsider, and, even, and the insiders so often don't recognize God at work. Like, I wonder if that's what Jesus meant when he said, blessed are the poor in spirit, or blessed are the meek, or when he said, how hard is it for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven? And in fact, Mary will sing about this reversal in the very next section in Luke chapter one. She'll say, he has, perform- he has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and he has lifted up the humble. We see it all throughout the gospels. The religious leaders hold back, keep their distance. They test and challenge Jesus. They eventually plot to kill him and succeed. But it is the poor, the disabled, the marginalized, the sinners, they're the ones who flock to Jesus. Why is that? I think that's a really important question for us to ask because most of us in this room are the wealthy, the well-educated, and the powerful. Right? What, way, what might we miss of God's presence in our lives? In what ways might our own skepticism keep us from recognizing God in our midst? I wonder if Zechariah just knew too much, right? Maybe he was too certain of the ways that God worked or of the ways that his own body and Elizabeth's bodies worked or didn't work. Maybe he was so used to being the one who was in control of the things of God And so he thought he knew the limits of it all. Or maybe he was too jaded by years of hoping and praying and being disappointed. Maybe Mary, in her youth, her lack of status and credentials, maybe she knew how little she knew. So she still had some space in herself for wonder. For wonder at what God can do. I heard a pastor say the other day that the difference between wonder and fear is that fear looks at the future and expects it to be bad, and wonder looks at the future and expects it to be good. And kids still have a lot more space in them for wonder than adults do, I think. Maybe we need to practice a little more. Maybe we we need to learn how to marvel at how little we know of the world and of God and even of ourselves so that we too can be ready for something new to take shape. What might we be missing thinking that we know the limits of how God's work and who God, how God works and who God works through and what God does in the world? Because who would have guessed what God did through Mary? The wonder of the incarnation is really hard to explain. It's hard to wrap our heads around the incredibleness of it. I don't think that's a word. Um, It comes out best in poetry, really. Uh, There's a ton of beautiful poems about the Incarnation. 
um, John Donne, in one of his sonnets, said that God will now wear flesh, God will now wear flesh taken from Mary. And then speaking to Mary, he said, thou art now thy maker's maker, thy father's mother. Thou hast light in dark and shut in a little room, immensity cloistered in thy dear womb. Immensity cloistered in thy dear womb. Mary's yes in that moment with Gabriel is so beyond her. She can't possibly know all that her yes means. But she will bear it out. Uh, Debbie Thomas said, my guess is that like us, she knew just enough to get started. My guess is that the work of bearing God into the world involved ceaseless discovery and ongoing consent, just like it does today. Mary heard a word from God and she began to make room for it in her mind and in her heart. You could call it a hospitality toward God. A hospitality that would extend even to her body. Because as the child grew, even her organs would be pushed aside to make room for the Holy One. Gerard Manley Hopkins has this um, poem about Mary called The Blessed Virgin Mary Compared to the Air We Breathe which is sort of a cumbersome title and a very dense poem and long, uh, but I really love it. Um, he says that Mary's one work was to let all God's glory through. Um, and he compares Mary to the blue sky, saying that the days when the sky is bluest are the days when every color glows, each shape and shadow shows. The blue sky, surprisingly, doesn't make everything blue, right? It lets sunlight through it so that we can see everything more clearly than before. And if the atmosphere didn't filter the sun the way it does, we would be blinded by the, blinded by the light. Oh, I tried to not say that. Um, <laughs> if the atmosphere didn't filter the sun in that way, we would be blinded by it, right? And destroyed by the heat. It's the same way with Mary, Hopkins says. As the light of the sun comes through the atmosphere and makes all things clearer, God came through Mary's body so that we could see God more clearly in Jesus. Hopkins says God's plain glory would blind us. You know, like the priests in the temple with a rope tied around his waist, it might kill you with a touch. But, through her, we may see him, made sweeter, not made dim. And her hand leaves his light sifted to suit our sight. Mary's timid, uninformed yes, let all God's glory through. And Mary may not have been in the temple when she learned of her coming pregnancy, but her yes made her very womb the holy of holies bearing God into the world. And eventually, because of her willingness to be hospitable to God, in Jesus' birth, the whole earth became the holy of holies. The whole world became where the, the place where God would dwell with God's people. And we saw his glory, full of grace and truth. No more ropes around waists for fear of too much of God's presence. 
No more Moses being hidden in the cleft of the rock lest he see God's face and die. Now through Mary, the birth of God spilled blood and water on a stable floor. Now instead of fear and distance, the Almighty makes mud and dabs it in the blind man's eyes. The Eternal One gathers children onto his knee. The maker of heaven and earth sits at a well with a woman in the heat of day and asks her for a drink. The infinite stoops low and washes feet. The God of peace surrenders to our violence and is hung on a cross, only to rise victorious three days later because Mary let all God's glory through. I'm sure it's not what she would have imagined for her life. Certainly not what she would have hoped for for her child. Her yes was a yes to grief in many ways. But because of her yes and because of Jesus' yes, we too have become like Mary. The gift of the Holy Spirit means that each of us bear God into the world as she did, letting all God's glory through. What might that mean? I read one commentary this week that said, love is an unfolding force in history, taking shape through generations of ordinary, unexpected, and often vulnerable people, like Mary and like you. What does it mean for you to be hospitable to God being born in you? What does it mean for you to say yes as Mary did? How do we enter into that ceaseless discovery and ongoing consent required by this holy calling? What might it mean to look at the world with Mary's wonder? Not that we understand it all or can control it all, but leaning into the thought that God might just be working in ways that are totally unfathomable to us. Unbelievable, even. Through people we might not have guessed, in places we hardly ever think of. To let go of all those things that we think we understand. All the lines that we feel like we have to draw, and instead to let love unfold through us as it did through Mary, cherishing and wondering at this scandalous pregnancy that lasted so much more than a day, that required her to let go of everything her community would have expected of her, that was improbable and unbelievable, and let all God's glory through. Let's pray. Lord God, may we learn from Mary to wonder at what you might be doing, to wonder at how we may be a part of it. To make room in our, our lives and in ourselves um, 
for you that we too might let your glory through. In Jesus' name, amen.